Many people believe that unemployment is no longer a serious menace, that anybody who really wants work can find it, that the government already provides for the unemployed, that there is plentiful work across the water for a man of enterprise. And so in competition with many worthy causes that have a more general appeal, the Mount Street Club has lost much of its public support. The need of the club is, however, as great as ever. In particular, many an older family man without special skill, less active than he was, and prevented by family responsibilities from seeking employment far from home, still find work difficult or impossible to come by. A man with a wife and three children receives from the state approximately £160 per year. The club enables such a man to supplement this sum and offers him something valuable that he can obtain in no other way. Here he can produce clothes, furniture, shoes, and above all, food for his children and himself. Even more important, he can maintain his health and self-respect. So wrote P.T. Somerville Large about the Mount Street Club in April 1959. The club, which was one of the last philanthropic gestures to be seen in Dublin, was set up in 1934 by a group of concerned businessmen to help alleviate some of the hardship of those unluckier than themselves. Kathleen Delap tells us how her late husband Hugh became involved. He got involved because of his brother-in-law, Paddy Lodge, having started the idea with a friend, Jim Waller. Now, Jim Waller was a civil engineer, and he was a partner in the firm of Delap and Waller. And the, the, Delap was Hugh's father. Uh, Jim Waller was a man with thousands of ideas, <laughs> some of which were, came out and some didn't. But he and Paddy seemed to be of a like mind, and, the, and quite early on they were worried about the state of unemployed men, particularly in Dublin, where there was nothing for them to do. They started this idea of a club. But fairly early on, Jim Waller went off to England so that Paddy carried on and got a lot of friends around him, including his own brother, Beecher Sombolodge, the oculist, and Hugh came in then because he was my brother-in-law, as I said. He was married to my sister, Grace. And that's how Hugh got in on it. It started in '34, but I'd say Hugh wouldn't have been into it much before '36, '37, round about that. He was on the edges of it and heard Paddy talking about it, but I don't think he was actually on the board of governors till about '37. He was always interested in anything, anything that really was for the good of humanity, in general, and didn't seem to have any ulterior motives at the back. No man can stand day by day unharmed by the realisation that his life is being wasted and every hour spent uselessly and aimlessly is more than an hour wasted. It is one step further towards an acceptance of purposeless existence. 
The club itself, it was for people who weren't working. It was very good in this respect that the men could go over and do some type of work. They were learning tailoring. There was a man, a tailor, used to come in and teach them how to sew. And they used to get clothes. People would give clothes. For the work that the people done in the club, they used to be given tallies for so many hours' work. And the tallies were, were like cloakroom tickets, like, you know. There was also shoe repairers, or like cobblers, and they learned the men how to repair the shoes and that. And for the work that the men done, as I say, they got the tallies. And eventually, the people, they didn't call it the Mount Street Club, they called it the Tally Club. And we'd big clothes from all over the place. And even sort of household goods, blankets, sheets, anything like that. The poverty was dreadful at that time. We'd wash them and mend them and everything. And then there was in the Mount Street Club, there was one, the shop it was called. We had everything stacked. And once a week, the men would come, or once a week, the wives would come. And children's clothes, of course, were very popular as well. That was George Howell who trained in the club gymnasium and Beatrice Somerville-Large describing how the club worked. The premises of the club are at 81 and 82 Lower Mount Street. They compose club rooms for ordinary social club life. A first-class kitchen, storeroom and scullery, a dining room or main hall, with seating capacity for about 100 persons. A series of workshops wherein such occupations as carpentry, boot mending, weaving, cycle repairs and so forth may be practised. A barber shop and a small laundry, ample sanitary accommodation and a gymnasium with shower bath. The whole building has been put in a first-class state of repair and electricity, central heating and hot water services are being installed. The founders of the club put forward the initial rent money themselves. The property had large, though dilapidated, stables and outbuildings, which were perfect for conversion for workshops, physical exercise and games. Quite early on, too, uh, myself and my sister Grace, that was Paddy Summerlodge's wife, and Mrs Newcomb, who was the secret- wife of the secretary, and a few others, we were roped in to help with the shop. Now, the shop was where they bought what they wanted with tallies, including children's clothes, women's clothes, household goods. And we had the shop open in the mornings. I mean, ordinary, well-meaning people would give us stuff too. We always seemed to have lots of stuff in the shop for them. And, you see, the tallies then were handed over to the wives. They would come in and spend the tallies. What we were doing, we were buying in from kind shops, if you like to put it that way. There's a shop called Kellett's, and you probably wouldn't remember Kellett's. They were awfully good. They would give us materials. Say, for instance, we get a whole roll of tweed. Maybe it was a colour that wasn't selling very well, but anyway, they gave them to us. So then we would have a working party of our friends. 
in one of our friends' houses and we'd all make little boy shorts or something like that out of the tweed and then sell them for tallies. But they'd also give us clothes, you see, ready-made clothes that maybe was the end of a line that wasn't doing very well. Mr. Kellett, I think, might have been one of the governors. He certainly was involved. A word of explanation is necessary on the question of service. The working of the club itself provides much occupation. The production, collection, preparation and cooking of food, the preparation of meals, the scrubbing and cleaning and all the usual daily jobs provide many hours' employment. In this way, each member does service to the club itself by doing all the domestic work of the club, by providing for the needs of the club and by carrying out work in connection with the maintenance and alteration of the club premises. For each hour of service rendered to the club, a member receives one tally, and the latter is used in payment for meals, surplus food, subscriptions and such goods as are presented to the club by its friends. The first principle. The club is managed by the members for the members, acting through the members' committee. General control is exercised by the governor's committee. The club management is, as far as possible, similar to that of an ordinary social club. Not only are the members themselves the best judges of their own needs, but the experience, interest and responsibility of running the club are, we consider, of great value to them. We were more involved with the wives, when the wives had come in and then children's clothes and that kind of thing. And they'd ask us for something specific and we'd try and get, get it for them. Blankets, children's shoes... Week's subscription, one tally. Lunch, half tally. Dinner, soup, joint, two veg, one tally. Tea, with plain or homemade bread and butter, half tally. Overcoat to order, 60 tallies. Suit to order, from 75 tallies. Men's trousers to order... I think the corporation gave them those allotments free out in Merion and in Sydney Parade, where they were able to produce vegetables enough to keep the restaurant so that they, all their potatoes and their cabbage and all that were produced there. They had to appeal to people for money because they had to buy seeds and they had to buy manures and all those kind of things. So there was a good deal of fundraising going on all the time as well. And it was after they'd been doing that for some time, they realised it really would be a good idea if they had a farm that could do more than just produce some vegetables. And they were able to get land out near Palmerston, which I think is part of Belly Fermat. Potatoes per stone, one tally... Other vegetables, half tally. Pickles, preserves, grown in club gardens, per jar, one tally. Hire of bicycle, per day, half tally. Baths, subscription per week. By 1938, the club had become a victim of its own success. It was full to capacity and had to open a waiting list. 
there just wasn't enough food being produced to go around. The allotments had limited output. The club was running out of space and raw materials. So the governors decided to purchase a farm. Christy Morn, son of the last steward at the farm, tells us more. The Mount Street Club farm was in Larkfield, Llandochen, County Dublin, is uh, where it was, and it consisted of around 120 acres of, of land. Some of it was agricultural, used as agriculture. All the crops and that were sold for to keep the farm going and the place going there, and uh, more of it was in grazing for the cattle. One of the things that was very, very important, they, they got the unions on their side very early on because the unions could have taken exception. They could have said, oh, this is a way of not giving the men jobs or not giving them... The there was no question that they would not go on receiving their dole. That was very important. And once they got the unions on their side, I think, the men then followed... But while the men may have followed, the existence of the Mount Street Club caused grave dissatisfaction in certain union circles because it was seen to be a form of latter-day paternalism. The second principle. The club is not run on the lines of an ordinary charitable institution. Each member pays a weekly subscription and also for his meals, games and any materials he may use in the occupational activities of the club, such as carpentry, etc., it is obvious that an ordinary charitable organisation cannot be a club in the best sense of the word. The insistence that the members pay for the amenities received is an adequate safeguard that they shall not regard themselves as the recipients of charity. I was brought up, and so were the Somerville Lodges, that you must help in the community and help your fellow men. Do you know, so you, you didn't go out to enjoy yourself. Sure. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? When my husband went to the war, I, I had no children then, and I went to Trinity and I trained as a social worker. And then one became conscious of the awful poverty in Dublin at that time. It was desperate. The one family I got involved with in Sean McDermott Street, and I remember there were eight children, a drunken father and a mother, such a decent little mother. Well, there was... There was no furniture in the room at all, hardly. There was a table, and there was where they slept in a corner. There was an old mattress, and there was almost dirty rags for blankets, and there they slept. I mean, that was quite usual. Well, I'd been only ten when I came there myself in uh, 57, but um, I didn't actually know at the particular time being a ten-year-old, but it didn't take me too long to find out because um, it was... Great talking to all the different county people there with all the different uh, sayings they would have and telling you about their own particular parishes and their own particular counties. And it didn't take me long for to find out the whole setup of it because it wasn't actually people being distant from one another. Even all the members of the club and the staff and every, everybody, it was like one big family there. On the farm, there was a, a gate lodge and I lived at the gate lodge and there was an avenue going up to the farm. It was a lovely place now. It was a fantastic place to live. And uh, it was seasonal work in it. And there was something different going on all the time. And I was very interested. And you'd have lorries and tractors and all different types of work and different types of people coming and going all the time. It was terribly interesting and a fantastic place to grow up in. The people around were very friendly and it was a great place to live now. 
And back at the Mount Street Club in the city, the same feeling prevailed. The front was a lovely house and had these big bay windows. Yeah, it was a lovely house. Say it was two or three stories. There was quite a, a number of rooms in it. There was a lane at the back called Grattan Lane and you could go right out to the back. And it was right at the back where the gymnasium was, where we boxed. But in between that, there was the various little places that they had built for the shoemaker shop, tailor shop, all the various little things. And the people walked there. And they had a bakery. They used to bake their own bread, their own brown bread and all. And the people learned how to do these things. There's an atmosphere at Mount Street that is wholly distasteful to the sponger. Every possible chance is given each member to select his employment. When a new member joins, he states in his application the particular occupations for which he has preference. If it can be managed, he's given a chance at these occupations. But having enjoyed this freedom of choice, it is quite common for him to settle down and succeed at some work that he had never considered before. Many men join the club who have never had the chance to work. Others unwisely entered some humdrum industry which ejected them when they reached a certain age. Very few of these men have any reliable ideas of the work that will suit them, and it is part of the club's job to help them find out. I never remember any feeling of unhappiness. I think it is a a perfectly happy atmosphere, and if the unemployed didn't like the idea of working for Tarleys, well, then they didn't come to the Mount Street Club. The men that were there would have been mainly men from different counties in Ireland, and they'd be mainly countrymen. They'd have been the odd person from Dublin, all right. Now, them particular men would have been in the Mount Street Club farm all of the time. And they would have had jobs like of working in the laundry, working in the dairy. The likes of Jim McGarry that worked in the laundry and Joe Cunningham that worked in the uh, office. They would have been people that had worked in the army and retired out of the army and found that they wanted to have had something to do for the rest of their lives so that they came out and that have got jobs there that would have been handy and would have kept the mind active. And and also we would have had um, a lot of other men that would be coming there back and forward doing seasonal work. Now, the seasonal work would have involved uh, they would go down to Bordnamona in the Midlands and foot turf in the summer. And also we would have men coming back and forth from the picking of the potatoes in Scotland, which would be in the autumn. But... When that that seasonal work would finish, they would come back to the Mount Street Club farm and maybe spend some months of the winter there and wait for the work to start again. And while they would be in the farm, they would have one day per week off. And to keep them going money-wise and that, they would get a day's work with a local farmer. That would keep them going over the winter and they'd have something to do. Realistically, they were all people that was interested in working. None of them wanted to to be just drawing money and... uh, not being active. They were very active people and were all interested in working. Patrick Cummins was one of the men who found his way to the Mount Street Club farm. Well, I heard about it in Sligo. I was a resident in Sligo. And uh, another chap from Sligo, 
he had worked in it and told me about it, don't you know? I was born born in the, in the west of Ireland. I had a brothers and sisters and a father and mother. Well, after, after, after that, when I, I went away to England, when I come back to the west of Ireland, when my parents died, and my brothers and sisters scattered around the world. And you know, I was on my own in Ireland. Went and done a bit, little bit of wandering for a, a period, and, and when I got into the club, I, well, I settled in. Like, I, as I was straying about, I was glad to get in there. When you get old, that that uh, traveling is no good. It doesn't that uh, won't go go with your body, don't you know? When I come I come back from England uh, in 1948. Uh, I was from 48 to 62. I was in the west of Ireland, living on the on the farm. Till my father died in 61. Mother died in 54. Then when I was left in the house on my own, I took, took in the water. <laughs> yeah. The club is entirely dependent on the support of the public, both for its income in cash and for the help it requires in kind. Both these types of support are necessary for the life of the club, more especially at the beginning. Many associations... Many firms and many private individuals have generously contributed to the funds of the club and we earnestly appeal to all employing and employed citizens to support the club as generously as possible. It cannot be too strongly emphasised that in the last resort the number of members who can be admitted and the extent to which they are enabled to help themselves depends entirely on the financial support which is given to the club by the public. It is hoped that each body supporting the club will nominate a governor who will also act as a liaison between the club and the body he represents and also so that each body contributing will have a voice in the management of the club. The third principle... All payments by members who are unemployed are made by service. Members who get employment are invited to continue their membership. A scale of values has been established which is added to and modified as proves advisable under working conditions. The standard coin is one hour service, so one hour service is payment for one meal. Thus members are enabled to pay for everything, not in cash, of which they have little, but in time, of which they have a surplus. During the years when he when was working full-time, they would have a meeting every Thursday. After work, go along and have a meal somewhere in town, and then they'd all go to the monthly club for their meeting. So it was every Thursday they had a meeting of the Board of Governors. And I think it was Thursday mornings that myself and Grace used to go into the shop. I can't remember exactly, but I know it was one, one day a week. And then, of course, there was sport and recreation. Two of the worst features of unemployment are boredom and a low standard of physical fitness. These two not only render a man unfit for employment, but they make him morose, lethargic, dispirited and almost impossible to live with. It is very hard for the family of an unemployed man to live happily together. Recognising this from the very start, attention has been given to the organisation of sports 
games and recreation, not merely for the benefit of existing members, but in order also to attract the younger men. Boxing, football and handball are pursued with great vigour, and strict courses of training are compulsory for all members participating. In addition, badminton, table tennis, deck tennis and billiards are also played. Nothing, it is felt, will fit men for employment more quickly than steady work in the workshops and gardens during the day, followed by a regular course of physical training in the evening. My mother never liked her boxing, and she was always against it. And I was trying to please my mother and try to please myself. So I used to hide the, the boxing boots and the gear and go over and train and hope to God I wouldn't get a black eye or come home, <laughs> come home with a mark. And the local people, if, if they had a little boxing tournament, the, the local people would go over to it. Uh, they used to pay money in, a, a shilling or something, but that's all it was, a shilling. But all the local people would go to see it. But uh, there was a league started and it was held in St Andrew's Boxing Club in York Street. That was one of the, the big clubs at the time, St Andrew's. It was famous. And he put a team into that. Uh, I boxed in that league then. I got runner-up in the league. As a matter of fact, I had the cup out there still. People used to come down uh, maybe one night a week. Uh, on a Tuesday, I used to go over to it. And cigarettes were very, very hard to be got in those times. And these people used to come down and we played table tennis. They'd give prizes for cigarettes, five cigarettes for for the winner of the various things. And uh, they also played the game, which was, uh, I always thought it was a great game. I was always into sport. And they called it deck tennis. And it was played something like badminton. It was a little ring like that, a rope ring about that size and there was the net and you threw the the ring like that over the net now you couldn't let it fall you had to catch it, throw it back and you tried to lob it back just the same as you would with the badminton ball but it was a, a beautiful game Back on the farm with its 35 residents things were a bit more regimented it was ran on a system that there was a bell outside in the yard and the, the man that was in charge of the house, he rang the bell every morning at half eight. Work started at half eight. Everybody went to their different jobs at half eight. It also rang then at half twelve. That was to stop for dinner. And it rang again at half past one. That was after dinner. So... Also then, to finish in the evening, the bell rang at five o'clock. That went on for the five days of the week. It rang at half twelve on the Saturday. Nobody worked Saturday evening or the Sunday other than the people in charge of the animals. So it was ran on the system. Everybody went to their jobs. Everybody knew their jobs. And there was actually, there was, there was no problem with them in at all. No problem at all. They all knew the jobs, all interested in the jobs because the majority of them came from farming backgrounds and that's why they were there. 
they didn't want to be in places in in town where there were there was other places in town the likes of um in Mead Street and places like that where they wouldn't have any work. So they came out there because they knew they were going to be doing something and they enjoyed it. There was about, I would say, 20 rooms there. That would be the accommodation. be 20 rooms within the house altogether, but that would be making up of the kitchen and the dining room and recreation room and places like that. They were very, very well looked after. All different men kind of would look after the kitchen. More men would look after the making of the beds and the doing out of the rooms every day. More would look after the dining area. And uh, that is the way it was run. And the man in the house would be seeing that the fires would be lit and have the fire in for, for everybody to sit around the fire at night and things like that. And there was also recreational facilities in the house, which would have been um, snooker tables and pool tables. And we'd have had darts and rings and card games. And then, of course, the television came in. This was another variation of the indoor entertainment. In 1939, most people that was able, able-bodied, there was no work in Dublin. So we went away, signed up to go away to England or Scotland. I went to Scotland. I had a few fights in Scotland. I didn't want to fight, but they started... Boxing over there, we were working for the Yanks, T.A. Fuller, that was the name of the place, and it, w- it was a big, big job. It was a lot different than it is now. We didn't have much, but the little that we had, we enjoyed it, and we appreciated it. You could walk the streets of Dublin then, and you, you wouldn't be afraid of your life, you wouldn't be molested. And if there was a murder, it was headline news for for 12 months. Nowadays, it's an everyday occurrence. There was poverty, there's no doubt about it. It was hard times, it was really hard times. I remember, we know light, we know gas light, we know gas. Hammy Pomoli used to have to get up in the morning. And Lloyd and Armory called for They were wonderful women. The poverty they had to accept. And I used to spend my time at the coom going round get, trying to get orange boxes for the babies. Or, or they'd pull out a drawer out of a chest of drawers, put the babies in the drawer. I remember one that's lovely woman. You got so fond of some of these people. Um, she used to go and pick cinders. Do you know where the boat club is now on the lower road on the Liffey there? Well, there was a dump. And they'd all go, the children in their little carts and even some of the women, and they'd pick through to get cinders for their furs. And I remember she saw me going along on my bicycle. And, hey, Mrs, she said, I'm in Clover now. My husband's gone over to the BR. And you see, they got a wonderful allowance. If the husbands went into the army, they immediately went on to the wives' allowance. The men never got paid any money at all. The only money the men would get would be, they'd be classed as being unemployed, they would get the dole money from the state, and when they would go to work for a local farmer, they would get a day's pay for the day that they were off from the club, but they had to work four and a half days in the club. That was laid down and they had one day off. They were all very happy with it. As I said, they were all working people and they were content to be working. 
and they hadn't to work very hard in the club. When they hadn't to be paying for their stay, they didn't need a terrible lot of money. Never heard any of them complaining that they hadn't enough of money. Any of them that would be younger and that they'd go off for the seasonal work down to board in the morning for the footing of the turf down there in the Midlands and more of them would go to Scotland and more of them, if there was a slump in the buildings and the buildings came good again, they would um, get jobs on building sites. They were very happy and contented with that. Um, there'd be about 35 vacancies there for people to stay. Sometimes it would go down to about... Um, you'd have 20 there, and more times you'd have 35 there. But the average to run of it would be roughly around 30 over the year. The fourth principle. Production by members of their own requirements is a basic feature of the club. The governors are convinced that this principle will have to be the basis of all genuine attempts to deal with unemployment. It is their aim to enable unemployed men, through their membership of the club, to provide for themselves not only games, sports and recreational activities generally, but also a considerable part of their own food and other requirements, such as clothes. To me it was a good thing. I didn't see the stigma side of it, don't you know? Well, maybe outsiders did, but I didn't see any... No, I never got no anybody attitude from people that are uh, outside. No, even on out on no, I never did. The Mount Street Club itself really helped people out. Anyone that was in it, they, they went serving. Everything that was in the place, the, the people could buy them with their tallies that they had got for working. Everything was available to them. The fifth principle. The club is strictly non-political and non-sectarian. No gambling or alcoholic liquor is allowed on the premises. There was a harvest ball every year, and that would be held around... October, November. It always was held after the crops were saved and that. Now, they never had to have that modern of machinery in the Mount Street Club because there was always plenty of manual workforce there for to do the job. So the cordon would be cut with the tractor and binder. Then you would put it in the stocks and then it would be stacked. Then it would be drawn in with the tractors and trailers and the lorries and the sheaves would be put in the sheds. They'd be in the shed for a certain amount of time and the mill would be taken out then and it would be trashed with one of the old mills and the tractor. And when all that would be done, there would be a harvest ball. Now, the harvest ball would involve all the members of the club, the governors, all the neighbours. It would be a great night, be a meal and a dance and all, and it would go on till at least four or five o'clock every year it was held there. And the... Uh, Everything would be cooked there in the place, the meal and the whole lot. And Guinnesses invariably used to send out three or four barrels of beer every year. It was a great night all around. People used to keep coming back every year. All the neighbours, anybody that ever I ever saw had the, my first year there, I saw them ahead in my last year there. It was very, very popular and be a band there. and It was classed as a very, very good night now. The women would come from all the people all around in the area. All the neighbours, in fairness, would come in to make an eye of it. All the women folk eh, around that particular area, between Clondalkin and Local and that. They'd be all invited. And there'd be a big catchment area there and the people would be very close all around there. 
and they'd know all the club members from working down on farms that they'd have and that, you know, and they'd be meeting them and talking to them at the shop and in the town like Clondalkin and Loughan and that. So everybody kind of knew everybody. It was a parish, it was a parish scene. So whoever would be asked would come and there'd be no question of them not coming, you know. So that involved a big catchment of uh, women in the particular area. And uh, it was a great night and it kind of generated great interest in, in, in the parish. Alongside this gaiety and prosperity, great social change was afoot. In post-war years, fuller employment, emigration, better housing and an increase in social welfare payments all led to a decline in club membership. When it was closed down, there were 15 of us all together, 15 come into Dublin. They provided for the men after the place was sold off, to provide for them in accommodations in Dublin. Some of them kind of knew before it was um, going to close that uh, Doomsday was coming, and um, they got jobs and they steadied them. And more of them that was, would have been there went into institutions in different places around the county that would have been gone beyond uh, working manually for a living. Most of them roughly would have been around 60, between 45 and 65. I always realised that it was a fantastic atmosphere and a fantastic place because the layout of it was very, very well done. You had orchards there, about six acres of an orchard. You'd have plum trees in it, raspberry trees in it, gooseberry, blackberry, blackcorns. All them were all picked and the jam was made every year for the both the Mount Street Club farm and the club inside in the Mount Street as well. But it was the smell of the fruit now and the likes of the gardens and the robot and everything like that, you know, it was another seasonal thing that you'd, you'd never forget. And there's very few places you would see the likes of that size of orchards. People in the place, all the members and the staff and all had as much fruit and all there as they wanted. And also there was a tremendous big greenhouse there as well, that all the tomatoes and all were there. And them are things you'd never forget. There's very few places you will go and that you will find as many such as fruits and the vegetables and everything, coordinated and done so well. Then you had the recreational end of it with all the sport and that. It actually had everything. It was just like a holiday camp. I enjoyed it totally. I enjoyed it totally. And I was terribly despondent and terribly disappointed when to think of such a place, when you think of some places so well organised that it would have to go for housing. I could never understand why a place like that would have to be demolished. You know, there's so much bad land around Ireland. You, you couldn't stop thinking about why you would have to build on a place like that above all, you know. In conclusion, the governors cannot express too highly their gratitude to the large number of people, firms and associations who have helped the club since its inauguration. It is with extreme satisfaction and gratitude that the governors have to record that in almost every instance when opportunities of helping the club have been offered, the response has been spontaneous, wholehearted and unselfish to a degree that they have difficulty in finding words to describe. And they look forward to a time in the near future when they will be able to point to every corner of Dublin's social structure and say that from each part spring the members, the brains and the money that comprise and support the Mount Street 
Club.